Hey, Eric, how's it going? Pretty good, Leo. How are you? Good. So the last episode, I spoke about public speaking. And one of the conferences I went to was in Toronto, where I met Tim Mitra. And he spoke about a topic that I think is really going to be interesting to our audience today, neuroplasticity. And we have Tim with us today. Hey, Tim. Hey, how's it going? Good. Go ahead and introduce yourself and what you do. Sure. Okay. Uh, I'm Tim. And I do a couple of things. I'm an iOS developer for about 10 years or so. Been software developing 20 years. And uh, for the last five years, I've been podcasting a tech podcast called More Than Just Code, which covers iOS development and the business of app development. I also co-host a show with Tammy Coron called Roundabout Creative Chaos, where we interview actors and writers and developers and game developers. And that's a bit of a bit of a chaotic show. We, we go round and round in circles, which is why it's called Roundabout Creative Chaos. And I should mention More Than Just Code is also co-hosted with uh, Jaime Lopez Jr. from Seattle and Mark Rubin down in San Jose. So we have a sort of, you know, we cover the continent in terms of uh, what we cover. And a third podcast I do with Jaime Lopez again and my stepson, Jonathan Kuline, we do a podcast called Spotcast, which is about centered around the new Star Trek discovery, but we cover a lot of current topics, sci-fi, comics, graphic novels, movies, TV shows, and that kind of stuff. So yeah, pop culture, basically. Nice. Are you a Trekkie? I watched Star Trek since I was like six, and I watched it in the 60s when it was first on, and then you know grew up with it all through, it was on TV all the time. And I kind of watched every episode, and all of my relationships with you know people have, have centered around Star Trek. But I think I'm more of a Star Wars guy. But <gasps> Star Wars, from a point of view, the movie that was called Star Wars, not A New Hope, <laughs> as it became known later on, you know. So I love every Star Wars movie. But then again, you know, I'm not fully versed in all of the Star Treks because I had a relationship at one point which wasn't super Star Trek-y. So I took my first wife to see a Search for Spock and she just didn't get it, you know. But then we watched The Next Generation when it first started up and then that kind of died a horrible death. So I kind of had to let that side of my life go. My second relationship has been much more amenable to kind of things that like being nerdy and going to fan expo here in Toronto and, you know, collecting Thunderbird toys and things like that. Right. So to answer the question, I'm probably more of a Star Wars guy than a Star Trek guy, but I think I probably like them both in equal measure. I've seen all the movies and so on and so forth, but yeah. Gotcha. Interesting. We should talk offline more about Star Trek versus Star Wars. I'd be more interested. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll check out your podcast as well. Cool. So in Toronto, you spoke on neuroplasticity. You want to explain exactly what that means and how that's important for productivity? Sure. I did a preview talk at our local Cocoa Heads meeting here called Taco in Toronto as a warm-up to doing the talk. And, and to be honest with you, I've had a hard time selling the idea of neuroplasticity in an iOS context. So I kind of had to wrap it in a sort of sneaky title by calling it Five Ways to Level Up Your Mobile Development. Yeah. And I, of course, because I'm doing podcasts, I wanted to be self-promotional. So that's why I mentioned the More Than Just Code in the talk. But I also write for RayWenderlich.com, as I mentioned in the talk. And as I tell this story in the talk, is that Ray actually has a wish list of articles that he wants the team to work on. And at the time, I was working on the article team. And I saw this, you know, learning after 50 subject matter. I forget what the actual title was, but I looked at it and I was looking at some of the other topics. You know, I thought to myself, well, I'm over 50. I could probably do this talk. And the gist of it seemed to be, and I forgot to say this during the talk because, you know, you get nervous in front of people, but I missed the part that I was a little 
taken aback by that, you know, because like, you know, the old expression, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, how come I'm still learning Swift UI and Combine and, you know, I've you know picked up Objective-C in the last 10 years or so. I should point out that my first iOS app was for the iPad in... 2011. 2011, yeah. That was on my 50th birthday. So as an old dog, I was certainly learning new tricks. And, you know, Ray was, yeah, yeah, let's do the article. He really wanted to get it done. I've created a Google poll and I put some, you know, typical questions you ask about, like, how do you learn and what resources do you use? How does it affect your daily life? And I asked for people on Twitter and and on the the Ray Warnock team and around the community of people, friends of, of mine that I knew. And we all sort of came to the consensus that, you know, we keep ourselves sharp, we keep learning. There's an insatiable curiosity about the way things work that never goes away. So we've never lost it, right? So I think it's not so much, you know, wanting to learn. It's that you have a propensity to pick up new information and, and new technology is cool and you want to figure it out and stuff like that. And for me, I've always wanted to make computers bend to my will, you know? Mm-hmm. Not so much for world domination, although I do joke about world domination, but <laughs> um, one server at a time, right? <laughs> yeah, or one podcast at a time. But the gist of it was that, that one of my oldest friends, I went to high school with him and, and we, we were in the art class together. And, you know, we ended up at York University together studying fine art. And, you know, and we've always sort of had this friendly competition kind of, you know, thing growing up. But he volunteered to join the poll and he sent me a message on Facebook and he said, you got to check out this video about neuroplasticity. And it was actually nine things you can do to learn to play banjo, right? And it's written by, uh, I forgot the name of the guy, but it's a course called Brainjo, like banjo, but brain. And the instructor is a neuroplastician. He's actually a doctor. Josh Turkett, I think his name is. And he goes through the sort of steps you need to form new memories in your brain, right? So I thought, well, that's really interesting that, you know, the whole idea of teaching an old dog new trick, that's kind of a wives' tale in science. I mean, neuroplasticity is a study of brain and brain recovery, specifically from things like stroke and stuff like that, losing a limb, that kind of thing. Those are all sort of brain science-y things. And turns out that they found that you can actually build new brain structures in your brain and new behaviors and new functions that you can use, just like we put together apps, right? And you can do this consciously. You can actually go through and if you want to learn how to play banjo, you can use these steps. And following this guy's advice, he takes apart the sort of traditional, oh, I'll just, you know, I'll spend, you know, three days or I'll lock myself in a room and I'll, you know, I'll learn how to do this and I'll come out and I'll be like a, you know, banjo player by the time I'm done. But in reality, your brain doesn't work that way. So I found another talk, another lecture when I started going down that rabbit hole from a doctor in University of British Columbia named uh, Dr. Laura Boyd. And she had a TED talk on how the brain actually forms memories. And also in writing the article and doing the research, I learned how to hack my own brain, which is where the idea for the talk came from. And the talk is also centered around being a decent human being with other coders, being a a senior developer, being a mentor to others. And you even have to learn how to do that, I suppose, right? It's, I guess, a point. So, yeah, I'd like to learn a little bit more about the brain hacking part, especially, I mean, I know like Eric and I are developers, but you know, some people in the audience aren't necessarily yeah. software developers, but like, I think the idea of hacking can be overplayed, but I think mm-hmm. it is still of interest to a lot of people. Like how do we keep ourselves fresh? Because a big part of any like personal productivity, whether you're a developer or an artist or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, is just like staying fresh and staying active. So like, what were some ways that you found that you were able to stay active? 
I'm cognizant of the fact that, you know, that when I'm learning Objective-C, like, you know, I probably spent two, two and a half years learning Objective-C, right? Because yeah. it's not an easy language to learn. It's a completely different paradigm. for Like, I was doing scripting languages, PHP and Java script and that kind of stuff beforehand, and MySQL and learning SQL and things like that, right? Those are a little bit more, I guess, they're more approachable than Objective-C is, right? But it's a whole different paradigm in terms of like even message sending. I don't know if I fully grok that. You guys don't you know what I mean by the word grok, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. I know we use it a lot in our uh, iOS culture and development culture, but it actually comes from a book by Robert Heinlein, right? Right. About the, how the Martians, you know, have a sort of fully understand something is to grok it, right? To sort of understand all the nuances of it and that kind of stuff. And so I know that when I'm writing Objective-C, and I still do write Objective-C as well as Swift, that I can feel in my brain, I can feel in my consciousness that I'm not quite getting this particular principle or whatever, right? And actually, I should also say that one of the ways that I learned to do a lot of Objective-C and Swift and iOS development in general is by teaching. I taught iOS development for a number of years as well, right? And that's a great place to go and learn. And not, you know, writing articles for Wenderlich.com as well, because you get given an assignment and you may not be the world's leading expert on it, but by the time you're finished writing the article, you have a pretty good knowledge of it. Right. If you can understand something well enough that you can explain it back, whether it's in written form or face-to-face with someone that you're mentoring or otherwise. Yeah. And there's also the other idea of the rubber ducking, you know, where you have an imaginary plastic object on your desk and maybe you don't have a colleague to talk to. Explain the problem to the duck. And in explaining the problem to the duck, you actually start to understand the problem. (laughs) And you can often come up with a solution, right? Yeah, I agree with that completely. I think like, I'll be frankly honest, and we talked about this in the last episode, but if I want to learn a topic, I'll volunteer to speak on it. Yeah. Because like you have to know it inside and out to really understand and be able to speak in front of an audience. This is really a suggestion I have for a lot of people is being able to like either write an article or do a public speaking or teach a class. Sure. I mean, Eric, you teach. So obviously, you know exactly what we're talking about here. Oh, yeah. Yep. And that's one of the ways that I help my students learn as well is I will explain something and then I will ask them to explain it back to me mm-hmm. and then we can have a conversation about it and I can make sure that they're learning and picking up the ideas that I'm trying to convey. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm going to come back to the actual answer to the question, which I haven't got to yet, but because I want to talk about that particular thing right there and that's communication, right? And I took a couple of courses at university on one called logical discourse, which is about logical self-defense, which is about learning how to win an argument. And the reality is there is no such thing as winning an argument, right? Most conversations, you know, you have with somebody else, if you disagree on points, there is a middle ground in the middle where you can compromise and, and you can learn something from the other person and they can learn from you. And one of the things we don't learn about communication, and we probably should, this should be like a driver's ed course on communication for us when we're kids or even at adolescents, is that listening is, is a huge part of a conversation. And if you don't understand something back, understand something that somebody said, repeat it to them and get a confirmation from them that's exactly what they meant to say, right? Because then you may say, no, 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 you're totally wrong. You misunderstood what I'm saying, right? Another part of my talk about communication was that one of the biggest challenges we have these days is that we're using text messaging and we're using Skype and we're using HipChat and we're using, you know, Twitter to have emotive conversations. And it's impossible to understand intent in black and white text, right? The point was there that the person receiving the comment can misinterpret what you're trying to say because they can't get your intention from what you're trying to say. You may be joking about something and they may think they're totally putting them down or something like that, right? So it's a challenge that we live in today because we want this immediate satisfaction of 
having a conversation. I mean, yeah, that's true. How many people do you talk to on Twitter who you've never met in real life? You know, you have no idea what they're really thinking, right? So, I'd like to just add. I'm a huge fan of emoji and probably too many people I talk to online's annoyance. I use them to punctuate many, many sentences because the extra context of the emotion that I'm feeling when I type out the sentence. Yeah. You know, there's actually a great book that just came out called Because Internet. And it's all about how language and communication is messing with us in terms of how we're using things like emojis. And, you know, listening to an interview with the author the other day, I didn't even know that some of these things like, you know, where does LOL come from? What was, the genera- what was it about? And how do kids use LOL as opposed to how do people like me? I would tend to type LOL in uppercase, whereas most kids these days would type LOL in lowercase. And it has a different meaning, you know? I don't know if you knew, but if you put a tilde at the end of your comment, you're being sarcastic. Did you know that? Nope, I hadn't seen that one. Yeah, so there's all kinds of new rules about, or I mean, new rules, but there's all kinds of rules about how to use emojis and text and, you know, the characters here. Like I use the colon P a lot when I'm kidding, you know, which is I'm sticking my tongue out, right? Well, how do you know what I mean by that, right? Unless we establish some sort of rule of communication, right? Yeah. Anyway, so coming back to the neuroplasticity question about how to hack your brain, this is where the the science and, or as I like to say, the rubber meets the road is that taking a couple of pieces of advice from Dr. Turkett's talk, one of the things he said was, you know, the reality is, is we can't sit down and binge 24 hours and expect to remember something. You have to take each practice session in short spurts, like 40 minutes maximum. Like don't spend four or five hours trying to learn a concept. Your brain doesn't work that way. I mean, you think your brain works that way, but it really doesn't. And bear with me. So do it in small chunks and do it like a little bit every day, right? And there's another brain science reason why that works too. And in the example I used... I've been playing guitar and singing and stuff like that for the last 15, 20 years. And after that much time of effort and little, you know, practicing, my band actually sounds like something. <laughs> like, whereas when we first started, they used to call it the wall of guitars because we all played the same thing and it was just cacophony, right? But, you know, after 15 years of playing together, we could actually put on a show and, and entertain people because we all learned we had a different role to play in the group, right? So where it comes back down to, and this is the talk, Laura Boyd's talk comes into play, is that she talks about how the chemistry of your brain works. Like you all know that you have neurons in your brain. The gray matter in your brain is made up of neurons. And when electrical signal passes, you know, it jumps from one neuron to the other. And that's basically how your brain circuitry works and how you form memories. Like if I start to tell you something new that you've not heard before, like just now, like how to use a tilde, an emoji message or whatever, right? You will remember that for a short period of time because your brain will create a chemical structure, right? A chemical connection between your brain. And it does this to form short-term memory so that you can just, you know, capture a thought or learn a new thing and carry that around for a little bit. But if you don't come back and practice that tomorrow or a couple of days from now, you'll totally forget that. That's natural. That's just the way your brain works. These chemical connections or memories are made to be short-term and to just, you know, be disparate, right? You only need it for now and you don't need it for later kind of thing. So the second way your brain forms a memory is structural, where if you repeatedly, like if you went in and practiced the same finger exercises or the same part of a song every day, a little bit, like maybe 5, 10, 15 minutes here, and then try it again tomorrow and try it, you know, till the end of the week kind of thing, your brain will start to realize, okay, this is more than a chemical memory we need here. Now we need actually to build a physical structure. So it creates a circuit in your brain. It kind of hardwires that memory. Like, I don't know if you guys remember back in the early days, memory was actually hardwired, like, you know, literally would take wire and connect the circuits as opposed to having transistors that would, you know, open and close, right? So that's where the expression of hardwiring comes from. 
or hard coding, I guess. So yeah, so this stuff gets hard coded into your head. And so that's the first step in understanding how the hacking works is that if you want to basically form a memory, you basically need to repeat that same action over and over again. And one of the things I like to do is I'll read an article by Ray Wenderlich's team on a new thing. Like, let's say we're talking about property binders in SwiftUI. I'll go to Ray Wenderlich's thing. I'll go through their tutorial on it, which maybe takes an hour or so. Then I'll go over to Hacking with Swift and I'll look at how Paul Hudson, how he does it and how he approaches it. And, you know, it's like his voice will be different than the author on the Ray Wenderlich site. And then I might go look at Object, Object guys, or I might go to and as hipster, or I may talk about it on the podcast. I'll talk to Jaime and, and Mark about it, and we'll bounce ideas back and forth. And Mark will invariably tell me, no, you're totally missing that. You misunderstand that whole concept. This is how it works, which is why we have them on the show. So I'll get a different perspective on it. But in doing these little spurts, these little sprints, I'm kind of learning how to approach the same sort of subject in a different way. Or I'll watch a WWDC video, right? And I'll learn a little bit about how this goes a little bit every day and through repeated use, mm-hmm. you know, I'll start to understand it. I'll start to grok it, right? What's happening there is I'm building a structure in my brain that remembers how that circuitry works, right? Which brings me to the third part of hacking your brain, and that's building functions in your brain, right? Or behaviors. And the idea of, of building these little structures is learning micro skills. Like when a baby learns to talk, initially they just learn to make sounds with their voice, right? And through positive reinforcement from the parents, they understand that after a while that an ooh and an ah and an e are different things. And they get different kinds of responses from their parents based on those. And then they'll listen to their parents talk and the people in their environment talk. And then they'll start to understand how to form words. And as they start to form words, as they say mama or dada and their parents' brains explode, you know, the baby gets a whole bunch of positive reinforcement. So the baby in the same way is also learning through micro skills as well. To the point where they can then form a sentence. And then the parents just go, you know, crazy, right? And look at, look at the prodigy son I've raised here. Yet all this is, is just brain science in, in action. Like, I don't know if you guys have kids, but the best part about, about kids is just watching their brains develop over time, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And yes, we both have kids. Yeah. My son's going to be three a month. And like that age right there, once you turn two, it's like... The graph is like a hockey stick. Well, yeah. you're Canadian, so you understand. It's a hockey stick, right? So it just goes like straight up. Once they hit like two, their linguistic skills really pick up. So yeah, and so many new things. So the best age, though, and be aware of this, is the age of between seven and eight. Because between seven and eight is when the brain finally kicks into being able to reason. Right. And the, and and the personality. And things like that. Yeah. You'll look at your kid and your kid will be looking back at you going, are you really that brilliant? You know? Yeah, it's amazing at that age when the whole thing kicks in and they start to have a definite personality. And I mean, kids, all kids have a personality, but you start to realize that they're looking back at you. They're examining you, whereas all this time you've been examining them kind of thing, right? It's the age of reason. Yeah, 7A totally is because like before the line between imagination and reality is kind of blurred. And once you get to that, like... They pretty much have a good understanding of what's real and what's not. Yeah, yeah. The best part is like when you have a three or four year old and they're in the room playing by themselves and you hear their dialogue, that inner dialogue is coming out of their mouths, you know? We get a full episode of Batman right now when my three year old plays Lego. So yeah, I totally get it. So coming back to the functional thing. So the functional thing or building functions in your brain is taking all these micro skills that you've learned and putting them together into a function that becomes a permanent memory, a permanent skill, or muscle memories, like to say, right? 
When you're learning to drive a car, you only learn little bits of lessons. You, you learn the rules of the road and hopefully you remember most of them, which is what they test you on, right? And then you actually start to drive and you start, you know, go through these exercises where you have a half an hour in the car with an instructor and, you know, your parents go with you and so on and so forth until the point where you're given a license and you're set out on your way. 15 years later, you're driving to work without even thinking about it. Right. I mean, doesn't it kind of work like the more often you do it, the wider that road is in your brain. So it becomes more and more subconscious. Like that's what I've recalled from some of the material I've read. And like you said, like repetition is a big key part of that. And I too like that you're saying 45 minutes (laughs) because right now I'm trying to learn like three different technologies and it's like, I feel like I'm going to get burnt out by spending all day on this stuff. And it's like, yeah, probably not very useful for me to like really spend too much time on it. Yeah. Because then you could really deal with burnout and stuff like that. There's actually, I guess it's also psychological too, is that there's another part of your whole exercise. I don't learn this through a consulting program I was on for a while and through therapy with my therapist, the psychologist. And that is you do also need to stop and take a break. Yes. Sometimes an entire day where you, if work involves using your smartphone or whatever, don't use your smartphone. Because you need that time, like your computer, you need to go and recharge your battery, right? Mm-hmm. So constantly driving yourself, I, I, I'm one to talk, of course, but constantly driving yourself all the time doing things, it's not possible. Like there's no such thing. I don't know if you, you've heard this, this, people say that, oh, I'm multitasking. I know you're not. You're focusing yeah. on one thing at a time. That's all your brain can do, right? Yeah, we did a whole episode on multitasking and the myth of that. So yeah, trust me, we know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so coming back to the functional thing. So like one of the examples I gave in this talk, and I would normally talk about Wayne Gretzky, you know, because I'm a huge hockey fan and stuff like that, because he does the same thing. But now that we've won, the Raptors have won the, you know, the, the champions of the world until well, next year. But for now, they're still the champions of the world. They, we had Kawhi Leonard on our team. And one of the things about him was he was amazing at three-point shots, right? And he was amazing at being cognizant of where, a bit like Gretzky, he knew where the puck was going kind of thing. And he would always sort of go to that spot and somehow magically grab the ball and, you know, turn the play around or whatever. But one of the things he would do is, and Gretzky did the similar thing as he did, is he would take a bucket of balls, right, or bag, and stand on the corner of the court, and he would shoot three-point shots from that spot. And he would do it over and over and over again. He would arrive before the team and he would shoot these shots and he would go and do the practice. And at the end of the practice, he would go and do another short session, 15 minutes of whatever, 40 minutes or whatever, of just doing that same shot over and over and over again until he built a muscle memory and a cognizant memory of where he needs to be on the court, how much, you know, how much, you know, without knowing the science of it, he knew how much velocity to put on the ball and his body kind of got tuned in to how to make that shot over and over again. Till like, you know, game seven of the last playoff series, the buzzer is just about to go and he's standing in the corner with the ball going, hey, I'm going to the store to buy milk. I know how to do that, right? <laughs> and he literally yeah. just took the shot, the buzzer went and, you know, the ball bounced three times and he's like, oh my God, the ball bounced three times. And it went in and the Raptors won the game because of that single shot, right? And that's because of all the time he spent without even realizing it, hacking his own brain to build that behavior. So that in a nutshell is essentially how you hack your brain, right? And because I totally hijacked, if you go back and read the Learning After 50 article on the Ray Wenderlich site, you'll see that like a good chunk of it talks about neuroplasticity, right? Because it doesn't matter how old you are. We used to think that your brain develops until you're like an adolescent and then it kind of stops and then you just start killing brain cells, you know, by doing silly things. But the reality is, is that, and I can tell you as a 50-year-old person, I'm the same person I was when I was 17. I look in the mirror, there's some strange old guy in the mirror, but you know, otherwise I'm that same person. 
And I remember things I did when I was 17. I remember things I did when I was 22. I remember things I did when I was 35. I remember things when I did when I was 40, you know, as if it was like yesterday, because those memories are important and my brain has built, you know, a memory around it. And one of the other things about the brain science piece was, and Laura Boyd talks about this in her talk, is that London taxi cab drivers have to learn the map of London so well that they can tell you a route while they're sitting and they're taking a test orally how to get from point A to point B in London, which is a crazy, you know, it's, it's like an old Roman city. It's like chaos, right? Right. And what happens is that part of the brain that handles the uh, 3D spatial knowledge or memory, like almost like geolocation, is stronger and more well-developed in those in taxi drivers' brains than anybody else, right? So... It's like me with touch typing. I've been teaching myself touch typing. You know, again, it's like, you know, how am I learning touch typing? Well, I, I did, a, you know, typically I did a couple of hours of a course online, you know, and then I kind of practiced it for a couple of hours here. And then this is before I learned the neuroplasticity thing. But every now and then I'll catch myself typing a letter or something like that or writing an email or something or, or making a tweet. And I'll go, hang on, I got to put my fingers in the home row position and then I'll go through the process. And for years, because I was a Mac artist, you know, my left thumb would be sitting on the command key and my right hand would be on the mouse. And, you know, that's kind of how I use computers forever. And I would peck to basically type, right? But now I've gotten to the point where I can type reasonably quickly and I'm actually getting used to touch typing, which is a phenomenal thing, right? I'm like 59 years old, for Christ's sake. Pardon my French. You know, what was the <laughs> part of the thing I think that helped me learn touch typing, going back to like practice, was chatting online. Once I chatted online and I had to like type really quickly, that's when like I picked up that skill. It wasn't like Mavis Beacon or whatever app yeah, that uh, we had back in the 90s. It was like, it ended up being that like AIM, honestly, that like got me into like typing by hand, by touch typing more than anything else. And well, it, like so, you so, said, it goes back to that brain. It was just once the brain kept doing it fast enough, enough times, it became natural. Yeah, and like you don't even think about where the letter Q is, where the letter N is. I use my phone in my left hand, and I type with my left thumb, right? Whereas a buddy of mine, we were talking about this the other day, like I was joking about the Nintendo generation who have the overdeveloped thumbs, right? <laughs> and yet, five minutes later, he was typing an email to his wife, and he was using both thumbs. Like, he's a few years younger than me, but he's not of the Nintendo generation per se, right? And yet, so here we are, two different people using two different styles, and we're just as quick as each other using an iPhone to type on a virtual screen, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know... Again, this is your body's been doing this your whole life, you know, learning how to do these micro skill things. The thing is where the hacking comes in, of course, and we're talking the positive version of the word hacking is figuring out how that works and then using it to your advantage to make your, to teach yourself something or learn something before. Like, you know, you know, we the old myths about, oh, I'll study the night before the test and whatever. And I remember this specifically writing a cheat note in high school to learn a subject, right? You know, like taking the effort to write that note is teaching yourself the subject. Right. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, sounds like it's part of the repetition. Yeah, it totally is, totally is, yeah. I'm a little curious about applying some of these concepts to unlearning a little bit. Did you happen to... Yeah, well, I mean, like, there's the old thing, it takes 21 days to build a habit, right? Mm -hmm. And again, the science of neuroplasticity lends itself well to that, too. Like, if you want to do something, like you want to lose weight or you want to stop drinking coffee, right? You just start one day and don't expect to not be drinking coffee at the end of the week. You know, it takes, you know, a while to build up that pattern, right, you know, of repetitive behavior, right? Maybe something that you do that you need to sort of be doing it less often, you know? I think we do a lot of things. Like I know from, you know, I owe a bunch of people apologies because throughout my whole life, you know, I've been overreacting to things. 
Oh, that's another thing I talked about in the talk was the difference between your amygdala and your neocortex, which is the amygdala is where all your emotional responses come from. And that's the more primal part of your brain. That's the flight or fight or flee uh, reaction. You know, like you see a snake. Oh, my God, you run away. Right. And so the reason why we overreact things and we, you know, blast back on Twitter and do these weird things is because your amygdala is 100 times faster than your neocortex. So it's more apt to get first place in the queue in your brain. Right. The trick is to stop, and one of my slides actually said that, uh, I forget what the actual said, but it was like, if you make a statement, you engage the amygdala, right? But if you ask a question, you engage the neocortex. Interesting. Yeah, that's where the logical thought comes from, right? So to unlearn something, Eric, I think awareness of what you're doing is obviously a big part of it, but it's the sort of learning to ignore your amygdala, don't have that chocolate bar, don't have that cookie, you know? be sort of more self-monitoring and in a couple of weeks you won't need that cookie, right? And when you do get to have one, it'll be a treat, right? Sounds a lot like the stuff we talked about in our episodes on uh, Atomic Habits Mm -hmm. because he talks about that quite a bit. We did a couple episodes on that book. Yeah. And just being able to like break out of those habits and things like that. Yeah. Well, anything else, Eric, before we close out? No, I really like that connection between asking yourself questions or self-monitoring as a way to like identify those cues and then apply this approach to hacking the brain. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me a lot of the habit formation where you find it first, like you do that self-monitoring, and then you practice some repetition to actually like replace the old thing with something different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and be aware, like if you have a life partner or, or somebody who's always saying, you never do this and you always do that. Remember those kind of statements are going to engage your amygdala. You're going to get an emotional reaction, right? I talk about this in terms of code reviews in, in the talk, and obviously this fits into what we're talking about, is that you know when you get a code review, try not to read it as if the person is attacking you. And then if you're writing the code review, try not to write it as if you're attacking the person. You want to ask them a question, like, why did you do it this way? Why didn't, did you consider such and such and so-and-so, right? Which will engage their neocortex, right? And hopefully, you know, you won't get the, you're a dumb coder, you shouldn't even be here kind of, you know, responses, right? Yeah, that's so true. I like that. Like you write the review or you write the email or whatever as mm-hmm. if, you know, trying to be as sensitive as possible. And then anything you take in, make sure you take it in as if, you know, they're being more considerate and not trying to take it in with such negativity. Yeah, yeah. yeah and that's another area where repeating that process, doing more code reviews, you will get better at it. Yeah. I feel like I've had the most practice at that particular, like not really uh, dissociating, but taking a step back and trying not to read something emotionally while assessing family finances. (laughs) Yeah. Nice. And I'm the same way, like I was saying in the talk, and it's true. Every time I go to create a pull request, I hesitate for a second before I hit click that mouse button, you know, because I'm wondering what is the reaction I'm going to get to what I'm doing here? Like, what have I missed that, you know, somebody's going to see his code smell or something, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Tim. We really appreciate it. Cool. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, what a fascinating conversation. Thank you. We'll definitely want to have you on again to talk more about this stuff. Where can people find you on social media? The best place, as I say on our show, is on Twitter. I'm T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on Twitter. And that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. I mean, they could give you email addresses and stuff like that. But we're talking about some of that uh, taking a break thing. I don't always read my email religiously, but I'm very good at looking at Twitter. It seems to engage my amygdala all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Fancy that. Awesome. And then we'll have links to your podcast, More Than Just Code, Roundabout, and Spotcast, as well as if you have any links to your material online. 
Perfect. Let us know in the show notes. And thank you again for coming on. Okay, cool. All right. If you are listening, you can find us online at OK Productive on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah. And thanks for coming on. If you've listened to this episode, send us out a tweet. Let us know some ways you've found to like hack your brain, keep you active, use repetition. What are some ways besides coffee, right? To keep you going throughout your day, keep you productive and keep your brain going. And again, Tim, thanks for coming on. Great. Thanks for having me.